this is someone knows so yay, yay. this is our episode 1.5 because episode one was like kind of a disaster <laughs> <laughs> um but now we have lila so yay Hi. all right so this is today we're gonna be talking about um the kidnap and disappearance of elsie parabet and we're sorry if we butcher any names yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, so this is our first um, Chicago-centered case, uh, which is where we are right now. So that's kind of what we're going to be focused on, on from now on, like Cook County area. So mm-hmm. um, let's start. Lila, do you want to start us off? Okay, well, some accounts refer to Frank as Peter or John, Carolina as Mary, and Elsie as Mary or Emily. Right, so that's just like an inconsistency, but you'll learn who those people are in a second. <laughs> yeah. So, Frank and... Um, oh, wait. First, first and foremost, trigger warning. So, please do not listen to this. If you don't like violence, if, you, if you're not okay with violence, if you're not okay with kidnapping, if you're not okay with um, little kids getting hurt, or if you don't like true crime. <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, why don't you start us off? Okay. Well, Frank and Carolina Parovec were yeah. married in Bohemia in 1892. They immigrated to the United States three years later in April 1985. They settled in Chicago, Illinois, in a two-story home on 2320 South Albany Avenue. In the United States, Frank worked as a painter while Carolina maintained the home. Elsie Parabek was born in Chicago in 1906. She was the youngest of five siblings and was the Parabek's seventh child. Two had passed away in infancy when they were young of, like, disease and stuff. She had curly blonde hair and blue eyes that attracted the attention and compliment of strangers. On the, morning, on the morning of April 8, 1911, five-year-old Elsie told her mother she was going to visit her aunt, Miss Trumpta's house, and left, through the rear, yeah, Trumpta, and left the house through the rear door. This was her mother's sister. She was wearing a dark red dress, black stockings, and black lace shoes. The home at 2325 South Troy Street was, an, was only a three-minute walk away. Elsie's mother wasn't scared to let her daughter walk the 0.2 miles to see her aunt. So, police believe that Elsie turned left onto 23rd Street and left again onto South Troy Street. So, you won't really know where this is unless you kind of live in that area. But basically, she just turned left onto, like, kind of like a busy street and then again onto, like, a side street. When she got to South Troy Street, she saw a small group of children, including her 9-year-old cousin Josie, like her aunt's daughter, following around an Italian organ grinder, which... I don't know what that is, but apparently, according to Wikipedia, it's someone who plays a barrel organ, which is like a big instrument that you don't see much of right now. <laughs> who, so this guy was playing on the street. One neighbor later recalled seeing Elsie talking to an unidentified man at approximately 11 a.m., so that probably is him. The organ grinder moved up to 23rd Street, and the crowd of children followed. Elsie stayed behind. There is much confusion on why she did this because there is a shortcut she could have taken that children would play in, so it was well known to the kids in the area. This is the last confirmed sighting of Elsie, 
of Elsie Perovic alive. Okay, so several hours later, Elsie's mother went to see her sister, Mrs. Trampoda, and learned that Elsie never arrived at her home this morning. That or they originally thought that she was probably staying in a neighbor's kid's house. Okay, that's first rule of investigations. Never assume that they're somewhere else. You always want to assume that they're in the most danger so you get things done. And if they're actually missing, <laughs> then you can actually make some segue into looking for them. <laughs> like, it's okay if it's like a false alarm, like you won't get arrested. Okay, so- Especially if she's like five years old. Yeah, so they originally thought she was probably staying at a neighbor's kid's house and would be home by dinner time. But when Elsie's father arrived home from work at 9 p.m., who has dinner at 9 p.m., and Elsie still hadn't <laughs> shown up, they became concerned and her father went to the police to report her missing. Initially, police believed Elsie was probably staying with a friend overnight and would be back in the morning. But the morning of April 9th rolled around and Elsie still hasn't returned home. When they found out she hasn't come back, Captain John Mahoney of the Chicago Police Department immediately began the search for Elsie. Okay, why did the police believe that she was staying at a friend's house? They already covered that and said that she wasn't. <laughs> Like, you shouldn't wait, because I learned this from another podcast, the initial 24 hours of a crime are, like, the most crucial, because that's when you actually could find somebody. Like, yeah. that's, like, the most common time if somebody actually goes missing and is actually missing, that they are found. Like, later than that, they're almost never found. Yes. And police officers don't start the search until, like, after 48 hours. Yeah, that's just... Okay, so the first tip relating to her disappearance came that day when a neighborhood boy named John Jarowski told the police of Maxwell Street Station that he had seen a gypsy wagon on Kedzie Avenue, approximately one block west of South Troy Street. Inside the wagon were two Roma women holding a fair-skinned little girl. So just a few little background. This was like at the time where like gypsies were popular in Chicago because this was the 1800s. So they were like, they had like, I think they were like they had like boats and stuff, and they just like moved a lot. They were kind of like, uh, like nomads, or like like they just like moved a lot around. And um, there were a lot of like people thought that they were like bad people. There was a lot of like yeah, there was a lot of negative stigma towards them. Yeah. So um, so this little kid sees one of them with a little girl, and of course. They think that it doesn't belong to them because, you know. So, yeah. Okay, and the other thing I wanted to say is that um, Kedzie Avenue, I definitely recognize that name from the train station, one of the, our train station stops. This is, like, I feel like I'm going to recognize a lot of names and street names because this is, like, actually close to us. Yeah. Okay. It is. This also caught the detective's uh, attention because of the similarities to another case in Chicago, the abductions of eight-year-old Lillian Wolf by gypsies in just three and a half years earlier. On December 7, 1907, Lillian was playing outside her home when she was approached by a well-dressed blonde woman with promises of candy and peanuts. The woman coaxed Lillian to come with her. When she got close enough, the woman grabbed her and hurried, hurriedly walked her away from the house. Lillian was put into a stretcher and driven to the outskirts of Chicago, where her kidnapper brought her into a waiting wagon. For the next six days, she was forced to beg for money and steal from farmhouses that passed. I actually did read an article 
are no i read like a reddit user's post that apparently like lillian was her like great 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 grandma or something and she was trying to research on her which is i mean that's pretty cool that she actually found out okay so six days later um a farmer named Thomas Abbott found Lillian in a Roma encampment outside Mammoth, Illinois, about 10 miles from Chicago. She was weakened from exposure and hunger and had been physically abused by her captors, but she was alive. Her abductors, Irene Alzine Birmingham and her husband, William Francis Birmingham, were sentenced to 25 and 30 years prison, in prison, respectively. When Chicago police questioned people living in the Roma encampments on Kennedy Avenue, they learned that one wagon had suddenly taken off on the morning of April 9th. The wagon was believed to be headed towards the village of Round Lake, 15 miles northwest of Chicago, where seven gypsy wagons were already camped. Elsie's father, Frank, along with detectives Shannon Comoros, immediately set out to find the runaway wagon. Chicago police told farmers in Round Lake to be on the lookout for Elsie. When the locals confronted the Roma and tried to search the seven wagons out there, the Roma decamped and left for Volo, a tiny village 43 miles from Chicago. Locals reported seeing a young girl who was half wrapped, wrapped in a blanket and appeared to have been drugged. Okay, here's the thing though. They actually, okay, so when it was Lillian's, like, when Lillian was missing and stuff, they actually, like, took like, responsibility and, like, went out to find her. I feel like they're being a little slow with this case. Um, but also, like, because, like, the locals had to be the ones to confront them. It says, like, the locals confronted the Roma instead of the actual police. Yeah, that's... It's a little bit suspicious. Yeah. Well, anyway... Residents also attempted to search the wagons. The Roma broke oh, the Roma broke camp a third time and traveled to McKerney, a city roughly 17 miles northwest of Volvo and 60 miles from Chicago. Police finally managed to catch up to them in McHenry, and they and were frustrated to find that a little girl they chased 60 miles wasn't Elsie after all. She was Roma herself and traveling with her family. Exactly. So they were kind of being a little bit racist because they were assuming that a girl who didn't look like the Roma wasn't actually Roma. But she was. Exactly. All right, so... <laughs> So they figured out that this girl was not Elsie, and they had been, like, on definitely the wrong uh, track on this case. So they started dragging the uh, drainage canals around Kedzie Avenue because they kind of thought she was dead. So, because this was three days after Elsie went missing. So if Elsie had been the victim of an accident, odds are that it would be her falling into water and drowning. The canals were drained on the 12th, then the 15th, and a third time between the 20th and the 23rd of April, but they failed to locate her body. They also searched a, con a construction site in response to the parents' speculation that Elsie may have fallen into one of the holes. Workers discounted this possibility, saying if Elsie had indeed fallen into a hole, they would have noticed her. Besides, the construction site volunteers also searched hundreds of homes on the south side of Chicago. Okay, so they're actually doing stuff. This is kind of rare in these kinds of cases. Yeah. For the next three weeks, Captain John Mahoney continued to receive about five calls a day of possible sightings of Elsie. On April 15th, a woman was seen holding a fair-skinned child who appeared to be struggling. Again, on the 15th, a girl named Minnie Pigash 
saw Elsie traveling with a band of 60 Roma. Police searched the Italian Quarter on West 14th Street and South Halstead Street after hearing that Elsie was possibly seen with an organ grinder. On April 17th, someone saw a man with a child who looked similar to Elsie in a hotel in Western Springs, Illinois. People in the West End and Kings part of Chicago rep- rep- reported similar uh, looking children traveling with Roma, unknown if related to the mini pig ash sighting. Another sighting occurred in Zion City in April 29th. So they're just all over the place here. In the days following Elsie's disappearance, Frank began to receive anonymous letters from someone who claimed to have Elsie in his custody and alleged, and alleged her parents were abusive. Frank was so incensed by, by the accusations that he burned the letters. Police began searching for the author, thinking that she slash he had informed had information about the case. Frank, Elsie's father was rumored to have, have had prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia. Several times they found little girls in gypsy camps and that he would swear were Elsie, and it never was. The descriptions didn't match up, and the cops... And the cops would have to persuade him. We couldn't find any information to support or deny this. This was like somebody's like kind of like, it wasn't really a theory like a lot of people thought this. But there's nowhere, because this is such an old case from like the 1800s, there was nothing on the web. Like this guy, like I mean, this guy wanted his daughter so badly that he just thought everybody was her. (laughs) That's so sad. You know. So, Judge Adolph Sabbath befriended the Parabex and tried to raise money for the reward-funded search. Oh, no. It's always the guys who try to get close to the case that did it. Yeah. By now, Elsie's disappearances had become national news, and people from the country began mailing Sabbath money in aid to the search. If he is actually a murderer... That's a good way to get money. I mean, yeah, he could just be, like, trying to get money for himself. He also ordered an investigation into Frank and Carolina's lives, not because he suspected them of any wrongdoing, but to see if there was anyone in their past who might have had a motive to kill, kidnap Elsie. They found none. On April 17th, Frank Parabek was set out with the police chief, with the police chief of nearby Sacramore? I don't know. To investigate some gypsy wagons that were going to Cherry Valley, some 70 miles from Chicago. At the same time, rumors were circulating, circulating that the Parabics have received, had received a ransom letter demanding $500 for Elsie's safe return. A rumor with that was eventually confirmed, but the letter turned into, turned out to be a hoax. The bizarre part of the anonymous letters Frank received was this. First, there was a report in the Daily News that Carol Lena had gotten a ransom note, I think for $500, which the police would neither confirm or deny. The detectives sought the letter writer, thinking he had witnessed Elsie falling into the canal. On the 14th, they were saying, they were saying in the trip, Tribune that it was a matter of hours before this guy was arrested, and he was never in fact. But he was never in fact. That's the next to last article about Elsie ever. So basically, they said like this is like the same thing. But basically, they said like like okay, so like um, she got like a ransom note for five hundred dollars, and like they think that this guy has something to do with him. And then, like, people think that it's actually, like, a hoax. Like, because, like, the rumor was confirmed. 
but like people were saying that this guy was going to get arrested this guy or girl was going to get arrested uh, but nothing ever happened and they never wrote an article about Elsie ever again I mean it could be that like they were so embarrassed they had gotten it wrong that they just didn't want to cover the top topic anymore but like it's kind of suspicious <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So the rest of this information is from these articles, but, like, it's in, like, um, it's in, like, it was in these articles, but, like, it's, this is, like, later information. So, on the 20th, Chicago Mayor, Mayor Carter Harrison took over the investigation. He donated $25, which is like because of inflation that's like $650 today so the reward okay. fund I mean $25 seems like nothing but it was $650 back then to the reward fund and the governor of Illinois donated $200 thanks to Judge Sabbath and the contri- contributions from others acro- around the world the, re- the reward surpassed $4,000 which is 100 102- today uh, I mean, that's a lot of money for back then, right? Yeah, it was. Because, like, it was the 1800s. On the 29th, Chicago School Superintendent Ella Flagg Young issued a statement asking the school system's 20,000 students to search the neighborhoods for the little girl. Even Lillian Wolf, Wolf, the girl who was kidnapped, who was then 11, came forward to help the police. That's amazing, right? Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> Um, From the Chicago Daily Tribune, 24th, April 9-11. I would advise the police to send circulars all around Chicago. That was what saved me. I understand that little Elsie never had her picture taken. Well, send descriptions to all of the farmhouses and country stores and post offices. She'll be afraid and crying, you you can bet. If it doesn't get enough bacon and eggs for them at the farmhouses, they'll whip her. I know. They whipped me with a horse whip. So this was from Lillian Wolf when she was interviewed. And this girl, like, she so feels so bad for Elsie that she wants to, like, help and pitch in. Like, I feel like anybody who had been through that situation would try to help, too. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By April 25th, police had mostly discarded the gypsy kidnapping theory and now believed the missing girl had been the victim of a homicide. Judge Sabbath accused Chicago police of winding down the investigation because the Parabecks were poor. Lieutenant John Costello of Hinman Station announced that he believed Elsie had been attacked, um, basically, which was a euphemism for um, sexual assault back then, and mistreated, and was now deceased, theorized that her body was hidden in an abandoned barn or cellar. Okay, how would he know that? Unless... I mean, he was a police officer. He wasn't a forensic scientist. Okay, he could have talked to them, though. But, like, still, like, I feel like, why would you tell the public that? Because, like, my parents know at this point? Okay, but, like, back then, they were so secretive about this stuff that I find it a little and suspicious. Now too. Yeah. And now, like, I find it a little suspicious that he would, like, have the, like, he would actually tell the public this. It's a little bit strange. A little bit iffy. Yeah. The other investigators agreed. Inspector Healy told Chicago Inner Ocean on April 25th that he had lost faith in the kidnapping theory. I firmly believe now that the child is dead and 
that her body is hidden. A week later, on May 2nd, Chicago's chief of police, John McWeeny, she <laughs> was murdered and, and was hopeful that her body would re- be recovered shortly. Oh, what? wow. Okay. Okay. Just so, this guy with, like, I mean, I feel like he's deserving of this awful name because he said, quote-unquote, shortly. Okay. What? That is just so dark. I know. Those poor parents. Exactly. Okay. So, moving on from hot dog wiener guy, school superintendent Ella Flag Young released a statement on the 29th asking the 20,000-plus school children of Chicago to help search their neighborhoods for Elsie. Oh, right, we already read this. Sorry. On May 7th, Captain Mahoney also expressed his belief that Elsie was dead and offered his idea of where she was. Oh, God. He, he, okay. I'm convinced that she is dead and her body is in the river or the drainage canal or hidden somewhere. He was right. Of course he was right. Oh, my God. It's definitely him, though. Like, because they weren't smart, like, police nowadays, like, okay, I'm sorry, police officers, but a lot of them, like, in these kinds of cases, they don't figure stuff out that quickly, honestly. Of how old this is. Yeah. Meaning. Okay, so, yeah, by now, but now it's, like, getting into the 1900s, but still, yeah. like, how did he know that? Like, they had, like, no, like, DNA fingerprint stuff or, like, forensic, like, they had barely any forensics. It was just a wild guess, quote-unquote. God. And they didn't even have a body. Like, if they had her body, then, like, like, he, like definitely they'd be able to know where it was before. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on. On May 9th, 1911, around noon... Electrical engineer George Scully was examining screen guards at the Lockport, Illinois power plant, 35 miles from Chicago, when he noticed something floating in the historic sanitary and ship canal. Oh, no! He and his co-workers first thought it was an animal carcass. Oh, ew. But then when they looked again a few hours later at 3 p.m., okay, they pause. there was a body. Why would they wait that long? Why would they... They should just take it out. This is oh, oh my, even, oh. Okay, so they saw it. It was at 12 o'clock, and then they waited three hours to drag it out. Like, even if it was an animal carcass. Like, that, seriously, that's that just cool. Okay. Seeing that the corpse was getting dangerously close to the power plant gauge, which would have severely battered the body, Scully and his co-workers set out on a boat to retrieve it before it reached the gate. Okay, wouldn't you just retrieve it anyway? Yeah, this is like a water plant. Exactly, so they said that they were only retrieving it because it was getting close to the power plant's gates, and they were just going to wait for the police to come get it. Like, I get it, it's a canal, there's dead things in there all the time. But, but they didn't like, even call the police, that's the thing. Like, they didn't even, like, like notify the police of this. Like, I don't know if they had cell phones back then. But, like, they didn't even notify the police of this. Which is crazy to me that they would just wait for the police to come and find it themselves. Yeah, that's... That's messed up. I'm like a bunch of Yeah. Alright, so, this is kind of a little bit of a trigger warning. So, just warning you. So, the decomposing body the engineers fished out of the water was that of a small child with blonde hair wearing a dark red dress, black stockings, and black waist shoes. 
black, black laced shoes, sorry. Partly decomposed, she seemed to have been in the water for some time. Based on the clothing and physical description, the body was tentatively identified as Elsie's. Oh, that poor thing. Frank arrived at Goodale Funeral Home around midnight to identify the body. However, due to either the decom... The, oh my gosh, I can say this word. Decom... Oh my god, decomposition? Or his feelings of denial, he may not say for sure that it was his daughter. The clothes look like Elsie's, but the face, I can't recognize it. The Chicago Daily Tribune quoted him as saying upon seeing the body. Her mother alone can tell. Carolina was taken to Lockport the next morning and positively identified that body. Wait, what about forensics? They could identify the body as well. Forensics weren't, like, invented until, like, the 19... Like, not later in... Later in history. Well, I mean, they still have, like, some stuff to, like, forensics. And she was five years old. Her DNA wouldn't be in the system. Well, yeah, true, that too. She was only... Yeah, okay. Well, anyway... Um, with the search ending on a sad note, the doctors W.D. Paddock and E.A. Kingston were tasked with performing the autopsy. See, they had doctors to do that. (laughs) Because of the circumstances and the high-profile nature of the crime, the coroner's office ordered an inquest to determine if foul play was involved. With coroner William Wunderlich presiding, several witnesses, including Frank himself, were called to testify. The coroner's jury anxiously awaited the results of Paddock and Kingston's examination. The first physician, likely Dr. Kingston, who saw Elsie's body, told Elsie Castillo that the little girl had drowned. Castillo believed that Elsie had been playing on the bridge on Kedzie Avenue, when she lost her balance and fell in. Over the next month, her body floated for 35 miles before it ended up at the power plant, where she was found by the engineers. Okay, so here's the fishy part, right? But when Kingston and Paddock autopsied Elsie's body, they found no water in her lungs, indicating that she was already dead when she entered the canal. Furthermore, they found blue marks around her throat as if she'd been choked to death. And despite Elsie's body dressed in the same clothes that she had when she went missing, and trigger warning, the doctors found evidence that she'd been sexually assaulted. The condition of the body was consistent with what you'd expect to find if she was in the water for a month. They determined that Elsie had likely been strangled to death. So, this, this is literally crazy, because... They're two completely different things. Exactly. Like, strangling and drowning is not anywhere close except that for that fact that you can't breathe. I'm not a professional, whatever this is, but I can tell the difference between a drowning and, like, a choking. <laughs> well, good thing because the, uh, the foreman of this jury, uh, of this, uh, doct- of this forensic jury, um, did agree with us. Oh. Um... We at the jury find that Elsie Parabic came to death before being placed in the water. Cause of death is unknown to the jury. We recommend that the proper officials investigate in accordance with the law. The remains were found in, sanit- in the sanitary district ten- oh my gosh, channel at Blockport 3rd Powerhouse on May 8th at 3 p.m. The Chicago Inner Ocean, May 10th, May 11th. May, the 10th of May, 1911. This is getting dangerously close to my birthday. 
birthday. <laughs> no, we already passed my brother's birthday, so. Um, okay, so they said nothing about the strangulation, um, which was briefly mentioned, and like, but like they wouldn't they like know about that because like they're all because like these people aren't just random people; they're like, like professionals. Yeah. So, like, if those doctors believed that she was strangled, then they probably did too, right? Yeah. It's just so fishy. I know. Okay, so a second autopsy, performed by Drs. Warren Hunter and E.R. LeCount, a day later confirmed the absence of water in Elsie's lungs and that she'd been assaulted. See, jury, this autopsy is significant because it came to two different conclusions than the previous autopsy. One, they said that the body couldn't have been in water longer for for than longer for for longer than two weeks. Uh, and two, they found that Elsie hadn't been suffocated to death as opposed to strangled. She had been suffocated to death as opposed to strangled, possibly by the abductor holding his hand over her mouth. For those of you who don't know, the uh the, the the difference there's like only a kind of I mean, to some people it's a big difference. To me, I mean, it's like basically it's like. Suffocate, suffocation is blocking the airways, like with like a blanket or something. And strangulation is just putting pressure on your throat, you know. Yeah. Um, the implications of the second autopsy were particularly frightening. Had Elsie been held captive and abused for two weeks before she was killed? Inspector Helly thought Healing. so, telling the Chicago Inner Ocean on May 11th that he believed Elsie was held prisoner and abused in the most, in quote, the most, in the most fiendish way. He then told them to, he would be surprised if the perpetrator was not arrested in a, within the week. He was wrong. Oh, he was definitely wrong, I feel like. I mean, he, given the number of suspects, we'll get to that in a sec, but given the number of suspects and, like, all, like, like, the, given that we're talking about this, like, what, like 200 years? No, okay, sorry. 100 years later, we're... No, it's like around over 200. 100 years later. Yeah, over 100 years later, I think we would know if somebody was caught, right? Yeah. Okay, so Frank and Carolina received an outpouring of love and support from the community, particularly from other Bohemians. Elsie's funeral was ha- held in front of the Parabec home on May 12, 1911, and attended by an estimated 2,500 people. It was a secular gathering, as if the Parabecs were freethinkers, and the service was read by renowned Czech author Rudolf Psenka. I am sorry if I mispronounced that. The large crowd followed the pallbearers as they marched Elsie's white coffin, which was adorned with flowers donated by the mayor himself, to the Bohemian National Cemetery, where she rests today. So basically, this, like, this wasn't a really, I don't think this is, like, a really public funeral, but 2,500 people showed up. 2,500 people that cared about her. Usually only like 100 at the max people would show up to like a normal person's funeral. This is crazy. That's, that's really sweet though. So she still rests <laughs> in this place today. Yeah. So, wait, where is this? Bohemian National Cemetery? Hmm, maybe we yeah, should go. Yeah, you should Google it. It has a couple of Maybe we should go visit there. Yeah, I went to the website a while ago. Anyways, suspect. The first strong suspect became, uh, came to the police uh, police's attention within three days of Elsie's murder. He was Joseph. Oh my, I'm gonna butcher this. 
Consti, a Bohemian man who lived right by the canal that that Elsie's body was found in. He had a history of being caught watching and luring young girls to his house slash hut. The very the very day Elsie's body was found, Joseph, Joseph's Consti's landlady caught Joseph once again trying to lure another young girl to his house. Why is that a normal occurrence for him? <laughs> the very next day, after Elsie's body was found, Joseph goes and kills himself by jumping in front of a train. Although I couldn't find it confirmed anywhere, when the police searched Joseph's house after he committed suicide, they found a small green ribbon in his house. The ribbon was similar to the ribbon Elsie had in her hair when she went missing. So I've heard this before. I've heard this for a couple, uh, two of the suspects, the other one being... Um, the famous one. We'll talk about him later. Um, I've heard this for a couple of the suspects. Not sure where, like, because there are a couple different sources said it, but none of them really had, like, that much proof about it. So, this guy. So, just to recap. Elsie's body's found. Day later, this guy kills himself. This guy who had a history of being a pedophile. Why wasn't he arrested in the first place for that? Exactly! Okay, so actually, so this source, this is from two different sources, so one of them actually, the second one actually confirmed it. They must have used this source too or something, but um, they actually confirmed it. So, um, detectives searching his home on May 11th or 12th, detectives searched his home on May 11th or 12th, so that was around the funeral time. They found a green hair ribbon, which they intended to bring back to Carolina to see if it was Elsie's. There was a small hole in the ground that had been filled with dirt, a plank torn from the floorboard, an old hemp sack that police theorized, theorized and may have held Elsie's body before he disposed of her in the canal. However, five days later, police cleared him without explaining and began to look to other suspects. Did they ever show the ribbon to No! Carolina? And they literally thought the sack that held Elsie's body, and they just cleared him. I mean, okay... I would have been accepting if they said that he actually did another crime and he and it was a different girl that kind of looked like Elsie or something, but... That doesn't make an excuse. Exactly. This sounds like this case that I heard where they, like, the like the drug-sniffing dogs, like, or the human remains-sniffing dogs, like, sniffed out the human remains on a property, but the police never looked. Oh, thank God. Like, they didn't even look to see if it was animal bones or not. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> All right, your turn. Um, detective searched his home on May 11th or 12th. We, we just did that. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. The next suspect was a mysterious Mr. Kinsella. Kinsella, um, yeah. Kinsella, okay. A mentally ill, religious, religious fundamentalist. On May 13th, detectives approached him to question him and Elsie's case. When Kinsella saw them, he immediately turned and ran away. Detectors fired a warning shot into the air and chased them through the forest for three miles. Suspicious. They lost track of him and it's escaped. So Did basically, like they never saw this guy again. Like, never. Did he just become like a forest man? No, we don't know. He just, like, literally never saw him again. This was like... I mean, like, okay, he was like a mentally ill guy... Like, of course, like, if some random guy, like, he sees things all the time. Like, if some, like, police or something, like, come and run towards him, like, 
and, like, he sees them, like, running towards them with, like, and they fire a warning shot, like, of course he's going to be scared, but how come they never found him ever again? Oh, my gosh. There's just so... There's so many plot holes. What was there, evidence towards him? I know. And, like, okay, I feel like this case has been reopened recently. I think I heard that somewhere. But, like, without all the DNA and stuff, like, which has probably deteriorated after, like, a hundred years, nobody's ever going to do anything. And, like, I know I've heard there are a lot of cases that are solved, like, later on, but, like, they can't reveal. They, like, quote-unquote can't reveal who it was due to, like, the family or whatever. Because the person who did it is dead. And the family can be the only ones who know or whatever. Because, like, they can't imprison anybody for it. That's crazy. Yeah, so I feel like they should just tell people so they don't start theorizing again. Because some people can, some people can just, like, get on a vague tangent, like me. Okay, so, um, also on May 13th, the unidentified body of a well-dressed man was found floating in the canal in Willow Springs, a community about... 14 miles from the Parabek home. Okay, already starting to be suspicious. He carried no ID, only a Catholic holy card. Okay, this, like... Okay. That's the only ID he needs. So, this kind of, like, reminds me of Mr. Kinzella. So, if he was a re- religious fundamentalist, maybe this was him. Like, it doesn't really say, like, what kind of fundamentalist he was. But it could be Mr. Kinzella, right? religious. Basically, he carried no ID, only a Catholic holy card. On one side of the card was a prayer written in Polish, uh, and on the other was the name S-I-G.Hoff. So Sig.Hoff. Okay, so usually Sig is short for like Sigmund, or like Siegfried, or something like that. Um, but Chicago police believe the unidentified man was somehow connected to Elsie's case. So... Moving on, on May 15th, Frank told police that he had been approached by a man who saw Elsie on the day of her disappearance. He told Frank that he saw Elsie on the afternoon of April 8th, walking on Kedzie Avenue, just south of 28th Street. This sighting took place several hours after a neighbor saw Elsie with the children in the organ grinder, and the location on Kedzie Avenue is roughly three blocks from the bridge which Lieutenant Costello believed Elsie fell into the canal. Okay! Investigate. So, if true, this not only means that he was the last person to see Elsie alive, but that she was abducted in the afternoon instead of the morning as previously expected. Oh, man. Dang. Yeah. L.T. Costello sent a couple of detectives to loca- out to locate the tipster. Shockingly, despite five different medical professionals confirming that Elsie was murdered and three unsuccessful searches of the canal, Costello still believed Elsie had simply fallen into the canal and died accidentally. Okay, this guy did it. Somebody... That, that guy. Oh my... Wow, he's just trying to cover everything up. So, remember the anonymous letter writer who accusations of abuse had angered Frank so much he burned the letters? So, Lieutenant Costello was convinced that the writer had witnessed Elsie fall into the canal and was able to track the author down to a home on Madison and Roby Streets. Sadly, within, as, just as with almost every lead before it, nothing came of it. They have the street names! On the home! Like, if only... Oh my god! 
modern. Okay, this sounds a little bit, this is going to sound a little bit like gruesome, but they had ways to make people talk. Like, if he tried hard enough, like, people have made people admit to everything, but like, if you just say like, did you do it? And they'll be like, no. Like, you can't just do that. Alright. That's just so bad. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, after 1911, interest in the case was briefly rekindled when artist and author Henry Darger <laughs> passed away in 1973. Darger is known for writing 1,145-page oh 15, 15, fantasy novel filled with hundreds of illustrations that wasn't discovered until his death in his diary. Darger wrote of a little girl whose photo appeared in the newspaper and inspired the creation of his main character, Annie Ehrenberg, who he wrote, who wore her hair in a ribbon and a distinct-looking collar. He wrote that he wrote that it appeared in the Chicago Daily News sometime between May and July 1911. Art historic, historian Michael Bonsteel searched the Chicago Daily News archives and came across Elsie's picture. In the picture, Elsie was wearing her hair in a ribbon and the same distinct collar as okay. wore in the novel. So, um, basically, Henry Darger, he's this really, really creepy dude. So, people have found disturbing, disturbing to say the least, drawings of children. So, basically... Not only that, but he's frequently, like, drawn girls getting, like, trigger warning, like, tortured and stuff. Yeah, so basically, he... One of the most common things he's done is... Okay, this is going to be trigger warning, but he drew little girls with male genitalia. That, yeah, he drew all sorts of messed up stuff with little girls and just, like, little children in general. You know, some of them based off of Elsie. Yeah. He had a cutout thing of Elsie that he carried with him everywhere. He just carried her picture everywhere. And I heard somewhere, like, there was a, one of our sources said that um, when he lost the photo, he got really, really, really upset. Like, he went crazy. He definitely had some, men- he had a tough childhood growing yeah. up. Um, yeah. Not an excuse for, you know. It's, it's not an excuse, but people do say that he had some really bad mental issues. So, some people say that he was convinced he did that to, he, like, murdered Elsie, but he didn't actually do it. But who knows? He's a really strange dude. So, uh, here's another, here's, the plot thickens. Um, I know we're almost done, but the plot thickens. Still, Frank, Elsie's father, passed away on May 12th, 1913. Really? <laughs> almost two years to the day, George Scully pulled Elsie's body out of the canal. So Frank died on the second anniversary of Elsie's funeral. Basically, because they had the funeral the same day. Honestly, he probably committed suicide. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's too much of a coincidence. So, Carolina died on December 9th, 1927. They were both buried in the Bohemian National Cemetery alongside Elsie. Elsie's murder remains unsolved. Well, that one... Oh, wow. Well, uh, now I feel like we should do a little bit of theorizing. Yeah, I personally 
personally don't I think it was that hold on what's the same I think it was uh Joseph Conesty just because of his history and because he was the rest of them had like mental health issues so we could yeah and they didn't have enough evidence for him they had a whole boatload and they're just like Exactly! And there was, okay, there was also that police guy, um, let me see, what was his name again? Um, his name was, um... It was, like, Korea, or... Or, no, it wasn't that guy, there was another one, who... Oh, was it McWiener? Oh, yeah, maybe it was, yeah, it was, yeah, McWiener, I think that was him. Um, so basically, uh, McWiener, wait, where was him? Where was he? Where's it McWeenie? Oh, Mc, okay, okay. Now, I feel like now we're just, okay. <laughs> this, this isn't really funny. So, um, basically, um, McWeenie, uh, I'm trying to find his name, um, in our sources. Um, well, basically, like, there was something about him, like, um, Oh, yeah, here he is. So, police John McWeeny said Elsie was murdered and hopefully her body would be recovered, quote-unquote, shortly. Yeah. Yeah. And then Captain Mahoney, who was, like, with the investigation. This is another guy who I think is suspicious. Like, I mean, sometimes, like, in a lot of cases, like, sometimes the police can be a little bit suspicious. So, he said that Elsie was dead and thought that her body was in a river or the drainage canal or hidden somewhere. He was exactly right. It was in a drainage canal. There is actually a lot of... There's a couple of articles about McWeenie. He's, um... I, have, I haven't gotten a chance to look at them, but... Maybe we can do another episode. Just, just digging into him. him. Yeah. Like, suspects? Or, like, the... Or just the suspects in general. Because there's a lot of stuff that we haven't covered about some of the suspects. Yeah. Well, if you guys want to see that... You know. Like this episode. Yeah, let's go. Alright. Um, Thank you so much for watching this. Um, we're sorry if it's a little bit cringy, but bye.